Hey, good morning. Good morning. You can grab your seat if you wish. It's good to be with you guys. This is your first time here. My name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We are so glad that you are here this morning. We are so glad that you are here this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 John 5, 1 through 5. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. We are kind of turning a corner. We, we, the end is in sight with 1 John. We've been here since the first Sunday in January, and now we are in chapter 5 of 1 John. This is the last chapter, and John is starting to wind down the letter. He's starting to take the various themes and tests for Christian assurance that he's been giving throughout uh, the book, and he's going to sort of uh, synthesize them and consolidate them into one passage and close with some final words of assurance for us. And we are starting to look at chapter 5 uh, this morning. And so First John uh, 5, 1 through 5 is where we're at. If this is your first time here, please take a moment, fill out the Connect card that you received in the bulletin uh, that, that you uh, received when you walked in this morning. Uh, we'd love to get connected with you, know how we can uh, get you plugged into what God is doing here in our church family and, and how we can pray for you, how we can serve you, and there's all sorts of uh, information that you can share with us to that end in the Connect card. Uh, you also received a, uh, what is this called, a postcard. Um, in the bulletin uh, when you walked in this morning. Uh, and this has information for uh, Easter Sunday morning, our service on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, I have been praying, I've been fasting uh, for this gathering, that there would be people here who don't know Jesus and that they would hear uh, the evidence for in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that they would trust in Jesus Christ and be saved from their sins. And I would like to invite you to join me in praying for that and fasting for that. And I want to invite you to take this postcard. We didn't give you this postcard, uh, so that you could have the information. You're going to be here anyways, right? Uh, so we gave you this postcard so that you could give this postcard to someone else, so that you could give this postcard to someone who needs hope, someone in your life, a friend, a coworker, a family member who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can be reconciled to God and, and find rest in him because he is the only one in whom rest can be found, and we believe that here. So I want to invite you to to share that postcard with someone in your life that you know needs hope, needs rest, needs Jesus. Um, and so please uh, uh, give that to someone in your life this week. Um, all right, uh, well, we're going to dig into 1 John 5, 1 through 5, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Um, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, and let's listen with reverence and with joy. As we start chapter 5 of 1 John, the Apostle John writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your sure and certain word that you give to us to give us assurance of our salvation. We pray that that would take place this morning, that for those who are here this morning struggling with assurance, that you would assure them. For those who have assurance this morning and are here, that they would turn and encourage and assure others. For those who are assuming their salvation here this morning, we pray that you would cause them to seek to confirm their election and, uh, and, and calling and their having been reborn. And we pray for those who are not born again this morning, who are not authentic, genuine believers in Jesus Christ, that you would grant them true belief and true repentance in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name and for his fame. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, George Whitfield, uh, he was a preacher. There he is. Uh, George Whitfield, a preacher and evangelist from the mid 1700s hundreds, and uh, he was renowned for his fiery sermons and passionate pleas and calls for people to be born again. Uh, You can go to the next one here, an action shot here. There he is preaching. Um, It's on the record uh, that that he actually preached this sermon from John 3 uh, called, Ye Must Be Born Again, over 3,000 times. That's just on record. Uh, he would preach all the time in fields, in public squares, in city halls, and in churches, all over the place. He would preach, and he would often preach this message, ye must be born again. Uh, he preached it so often that if someone was a, a fan or follower of Whitfield, which many were, uh, they probably heard him preach this sermon uh, multiple times. One day, a woman who uh, had seen Whitfield preach multiple times got a chance to talk with him. Uh, And she pulled him aside after a sermon. She said, Mr. Whitfield, you preach so often. You preach, ye must be born again. Every time I see you, ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. Why do you always preach, ye must be born again? To which he responded, like only an Englishman could. He said, because, ma'am, ye must be born again. And of course, you know, Whitfield, he, he, he was not alone in his preaching what we might call the necessity of the new birth. You know, he got this from the preaching and teaching of Jesus himself in John 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, he said, you must be born again. If you are not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And we have a desperate need for such preaching Today, according to a 2016 report by the Barna Group, about 35% of Americans consider themselves to be born again, while 73% consider themselves to be Christians. Not only that, but I would be frightened to hear what most of those claiming to be born again believe about what it means to be born again. That might be quite frightening to learn. What I'm getting at, my friends, and what Whitfield wanted to communicate to his hearers is that we, just, we can't just assume that we are genuine and authentic Christians. We cannot just assume that we are born again. We cannot just assume that we are genuine Christians because we attend church services uh, more often than not. We, we can't assume that we are genuine Christians because we, at one point in time, at a camp or a church service, walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. We cannot assume that we are genuine Christians because we grew up in a Christian home. Assuming that we are genuine Christians without examining ourselves, without diligently confirming, as as the Apostle Peter calls us to, confirming our calling and election is dangerous and we ought not do it. However, 
while we must never assume that we are born again, we can be assured that we are born again. While we must never assume that we are genuine Christians, we can be assured that we are genuine Christians. That's what John wants us to know this morning. He wants us to have assurance. He wants us to recognize the fruit of the new birth in our lives and to be encouraged, to be comforted, to be assured by it. He shows us that there are certain marks of genuine Christians. We might call them birthmarks, certain marks of the new birth. You know, sometimes birthmarks are genetic. Uh, Not always, but sometimes they are. I learned this this last week. I actually have three genetic birthmarks. This may be TMI. But I actually have three genetic birthmarks on my body. Uh, Don't ask where. It's extremely personal. But I have three birthmarks on my body, and they're the same exact three birthmarks that my father has on his. They're signs and marks that testify to the reality that I was conceived as and born as and am a green. That Randy Keith Green is my father. Similarly, with God's children, when they receive their new identity in Christ and are born again into God's family, they bear certain marks, birthmarks. And John tells us about four of those birthmarks. First, he says that Christians believe, they have faith in Christ. Second, Christians love, they love God their Father and they love their brothers and sisters. The third, Christians obey. They obey God's commandments and do so gladly. And four, Christians overcome. They persevere and are not led astray by the deceits of this world. Christians believe, love, obey, and overcome. And first, Christians believe. They have faith in Jesus Christ. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, what, what does John mean when he talks about believing that Jesus is the Christ? What's, what's belief's definition here? Well, to, to, uh, this word means, to believe here, means a personal trust, to place your personal confidence in a particular object. He means to depend on Christ as your Savior. He means to place your confidence in Him and in Him alone as your Savior. But first, we need to learn about where that comes from, where belief comes from. First of all, notice the source of this belief. The source of this faith in the life of the believer is God Himself. The new birth produces faith in the life of the Christian. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Meaning that our faith doesn't cause us to be born again, but being born again causes us to have faith. We don't cooperate with God in order to receive the new birth. The Spirit of God in His one-way love, apart from, his, uh, apart from your cooperation, causes you to be born again and opens your eyes to the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ to place your trust in Him. Now, this is something you need to understand if you're truly going to be humbled by your lack of contribution to your own salvation. Faith in Christ is necessary for our salvation as Christians. We don't have it in ourselves to place our faith in Christ. And so God gives us the new birth in order to produce that faith within us. We discussed this very briefly last week during Family Worship Sunday. Apart from the Holy Spirit residing within us, we are spiritually dead men and women. We're spiritually dead. 
We're dead to the things of God. We're dead to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like Lazarus in John 11, apart from the new birth, we're corpses in a spiritual tomb. And what we need is Christ to come to us and say to us, Lazarus, come out. You know, Lazarus, he he didn't cooperate with God in order to be raised up. But Lazarus was raised up. He came out of the tomb because of the authority and power of Jesus Christ. He came out of his tomb and took his grave clothes off. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that, that story is your story. That song is your song. That's what he did for me in the summer of 2008. I was carrying on dead and indifferent to the things of God. I hated God. I hated his word. I hated his will. And a friend started sharing the gospel with me and I started reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit took that divine word and made it come alive in my heart. Jesus stood outside my tomb and said, Garrison, come out. And I rose out and came to him and believed in him. That's belief's source. God is the source of our belief. He gives us the new birth, which causes us to trust in Christ and his person and his work. And through that faith, we are justified and declared righteous. But now, what does it mean to believe? That's where belief comes from. That's belief's source. But what does it mean to believe? What, 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 what is belief's definition? Well, here, the, the word translated as believe simply means uh, to, to, to believe, it means to simply trust in something, to trust in a particular object. To put your faith in something means to place your confidence in it, to depend upon it, to rest upon it. You know, Tuesdays are particularly long days for me. Uh, they, they tend to be longer and filled with kind of more back-to-back meetings. I do this on purpose. I try to load up my week in the beginning, and, and so that I have a little less to do by the end of the week. Uh, but Tuesdays, I, I wake up, of course, I read my Bible and pray and eat breakfast and, and shower and all that, and then I head out the door to, to have sermon prep, and I do sermon prep for four or five hours till about noon, and, and then I ha- probably have a lunch meeting, which will go from about noon to one or one thirty, and then I get to whatever reading or writing I need to get done for school, and then uh, that goes till about 2.30 when we have staff meeting, uh, and that's, uh, that goes till about 4 or 4.30, and typically I'll schedule a meeting directly after staff meeting, which will go till about 6, 6.30, 7, and then I head home, and I try to eat dinner and, and, and play with the kids and wrestle with them uh, and put them to bed, which is probably the most exhausting thing I do all day. And at about 8 p.m., 8.30, I will head downstairs, and I will collapse on a gray couch in our living room. And there, I'll either get some more schoolwork done or read or watch TV or something. And when I collapse on that gray couch, what am I doing? I'm trusting in that gray couch. I'm trusting that it won't collapse beneath me. I'm trusting that it's going to be a soft, comfortable place for me to close out my day. I am trusting that it won't break. I place my full confidence in that couch when I lay down on it. That's a picture of what it means to place your confidence, your trust, your faith in something. That's what it means to believe. But now I want you to recognize too from that illustration that faith is actually only as good as the object that your faith is in. You know, if that couch were filthy or faulty or filled with bugs or broken glass or for some reason something along those lines, or if it were broken or something like that, I trusted in the wrong thing. I should have sat on the blue chair across the room. 
You see, belief is only as good as the object that the belief is in. Trust is only as good as the object or person trusted in. And when we receive the new birth, we are empowered to trust in Jesus, not just have faith or trust in general, but to trust in a particular object. Jesus is the particular object. He is the person that are trusted in. Christians trust in Jesus. And so notice here, That John is not merely concerned with our belief, but he's most of all concerned with the object of our belief, Jesus of Nazareth. Christians believe in Jesus the Christ. He is the object of our faith. Uh, We are depending upon him for our salvation. We believe in him and his coming in the flesh and his teaching, miracles, exorcisms, and his life, death, resurrection, and his ascension, and in his ongoing offer of forgiveness and call to faith in light of the coming judgment. Christians trust in Christ. You might very well hear As is often said these days, that what your faith is in is not what is important. Just that you have faith. You could be a Christian. You could be a Muslim. You could be Jewish. You could be a Jehovah's Witness. You could be a Mormon. It doesn't matter. Just be a faithful whatever you are and you'll be good. My friends, that is a lie. If you put your faith in something faulty, your faith is worthless. If you put your trust in something untrustworthy, your trust is worthless. It's the object of your faith that truly matters. And for Christians, we trust in Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now listen, if you trust in Christ this morning, you have been born of God. You have been born again. Like I can assure you this morning that if you trust in Christ, you are a genuine Christian. It's that simple. It's not easy. It's actually impossible. Because it actually takes the Holy Spirit raising you from spiritual death, giving you the new birth. It's actually impossible apart from the miraculous act of regeneration by God. But it is that simple. If you trust in Christ, you have been born of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God? Listen, I I know that some of you are currently struggling with assurance. You feel that that assurance, confidence, comfort, peace in your life has been shaken, has been decreased, has been lost altogether maybe. Let me encourage you this morning, if you trust in Christ, full and free salvation is yours. You are a genuine Christian. If, if, If you trust in Christ, you have received the new birth. How do I know Because trust in Christ is the birthmark of a genuine Christian. Everyone who believes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you confess that Jesus is Lord? Do you depend upon him for your salvation to make you right with God? Is he the Savior and God of your life? If so, you have been saved by the object of your faith. He has rescued you from condemnation. He has redeemed you from slavery to sin. He has caused you to be born again because apart from the new birth, you couldn't confess him. You couldn't trust in him. If you do, the fact that you do is evidence. It's a birthmark of genuine Christianity, and that should give you comfort and assurance this morning. Let me tell you, this is true. Whether your faith is weak or strong, great or small, because your faith 
is not the basis for your salvation, the object of your faith is. Weak faith and strong faith still grasps and is saved by the same strong Christ. You know, when I pick up and hold my children, they hold on to me. And that's good. It helps, makes it a little easier for me to hold on to them. But when I pick them up and hold them, it's not their grasp of me that keeps them safe in my arms. It's my grasp of them. Their strength and own capabilities to hold on to me don't matter as much. They're safe in my arms because of my strength and because of my capability to to hold on to them. And the same is true of our salvation in Christ. Even if your trust in Christ is weak and in need of strength, and it should be strengthened, but he still is the omnipotent God that holds on to you. He is the firm and ever faithful object of your faith. But then John goes on to show us that while the birthmark of faith is produced by the new birth, faith also produces these other marks in the life of the Christian. You might wonder, how do I know if I have faith? Well, faith produces certain fruit. Faith is the sort of primary Christian birthmark here. That's why John begins and ends with talking about faith, and everything in the middle is supposed to be a fruit of faith, uh, but, but, but faith gives rise to these other birthmarks here. And John talks about these birthmarks. He talks about them seamlessly. They're connected, and they can't be disconnected. He goes on to say, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. You know, Martin Luther once said, we are saved through faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. You see, faith always produces certain fruit in the life of the believer. Faith always produces fruit. It always produces these other birthmarks. And the first fruit that John makes mention of here that comes from faith is love. Love of God and and love of other Christians. Notice that he, he speaks of love for God and love for his children as if the two cannot be disconnected. Remember the text we saw the last two Sundays? Uh, John said that the way that we know we love God is when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But here he flips it and he says, well, the way that we know we love our brothers and sisters in Christ is by loving God and obeying his commandments. That's why Jesus, when someone asks him, what is the greatest commandment? He speaks of the first the greatest two commandments, and he says they can't be separated. This second one is like it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and don't try to pull them apart. They can't be separated. And furthermore, he also, John also makes the case here that trust in Christ and love are inseparable. You see, because when you're born again and trust in Jesus, you're given a new identity as a child of God. You've been given a new father. You've been given the new birth. You've been given a new family. And by faith, you see the goodness and loving kindness of God, and your heart is melted by the, by the, the, the as, as, as Sally Lloyd-Jones put it, by his never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. And that love for you begets love in you as a response. And so John wants us to see here that genuine Christianity can be seen in a person's life because genuine Christians love. They love God and they love their Christian brothers and sisters and they show it by obeying God's commands. Which again, we'll get to that in a moment. But for now, suffice it to say, love is a necessary fruit in a Christian's life. Your love for God and for others is not ever, not in a million years, 
not what gets you in. It's not even what keeps you in, but it is evidence that you are in because the new birth produces faith and faith produces love. Let me offer some clarification. You know, seeking Christian assurance by looking at our own love is good. It's biblical. It's what John is saying here. It's what he said throughout 1 John. However, We must be careful when doing so because our love on this side of glory is always partial and progressively growing, not completed. It's not perfect. It's not what it should be. It probably never will be until our faith is made sight. You know, when when, when speaking of things that bring us Christian assurance, the New Testament talks generally about three different things. First, it speaks about the person and work of Jesus. Looking at the person and work of Jesus gives us assurance. Looking at him, looking at his person, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And looking at his work, looking at what he's done on the cross and in his resurrection, which is objective and historical and factual and true. It's the the objective, historical, factual, true basis of our salvation that gives us Christian assurance. Real, objective, concrete assurance. The person and work of Jesus gives us objective assurance. But then the New Testament also speaks about these two subjective forms of Christian assurance. There's the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit, he testifies to our spirits that we are children of God. He cries out within us, Abba, Father. We see that in Romans 5. We see that in Galatians 3. We see the Holy Spirit, he testifies with our spirits that we are children of God, giving us Christian assurance at times. It brings assurance. But then there's a third, which is what John does quite often throughout 1 John when seeking Christian assurance, we are to look for evidence of grace in our own lives. Christian, when we see Christian fruit, when we see Christian birthmarks, when we see love in our own lives, this can cause us to be assured of our salvation, redemption, of the life of God within us. Because that's evidence of God's life within us. You know, that's the major way, one of the major ways that John seeks to give us assurance in the book of 1 John. He points to fruit. He points to marks of genuine Christianity in our lives. And that's good, and that's healthy, and it's true. But like I just told you, we just have to be careful because sometimes, instead of merely looking for fruit for assurance, we can sometimes look for perfection for assurance. And that will break you because you won't find it. If you're truly born again and believing in Jesus, you will progressively manifest the fruit of Christian love. You will be generous to your brothers and sisters. You will will be patient with your brothers and sisters. You will sacrificially serve your brothers and sisters. You will forgive your brothers and sisters. You will forgive them and you will love them and you will serve them, but it will not be an infallible love. You will falter, you will fail. And so don't look for perfection, but look for progressive and growing fruit. Do you love your fellow members of Veritas Community Church, do you love your God and Father? Well, one such way that you can know that you do love is by the fruit of obedience. You see, because faith produces love and love produces obedience. Third, Christians obey. John says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
This is a summary of, this is a, a, a John unpacking Jesus' teaching from John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. St. Augustine, African pastor, he put it beautifully. He said, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. You see, whatever you love, that is what you will seek to serve and please. So if you love Christ, you will serve him and please him and obey him. This is why John can say that God's commandments are not burdensome, because love makes it so. You, the, the new birth produces faith, which produces love, and love helps us obey and desire to obey God's commandments. And there's a story about a man named Jacob in the book of, of Genesis, chapter 29. Jacob, he's kind of a dishonest cheat, and, and he's on the run from his big brother Esau, and he, he runs to a distant relative of his named Laban, and when he's at Laban's house, he meets Rachel. Rachel is Laban's daughter, and, and Jacob finds her to be beautiful. Uh, verse 18 of Genesis 29 says, Jacob loved Rachel, almost a love at first sight kind of thing. And after a while, you know, Jacob is, is staying with Laban, and time comes, and Jacob, you got to get a job, bro. And, uh, and so Laban says to him, listen, you can come and, and work for me, and I could just pay you room and board and leave it at that, but, but uh, I, I want to give you a generous payment. You're my relative, and, and I want to be generous with you. And so uh, what do you want in return for working for me? And so Jacob, greatly desiring Rachel, he said to Laban, I, I want to marry your daughter. Give her to me. Uh, in marriage for working for you. And Laban agrees and he sets the terms. And Jacob has to work for Laban for seven years to marry Rachel. And then Genesis 29, 20 says, so Jacob served seven years for, for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. See, when you love you work hard to serve and please and obey, and you do it gladly. It's not burdensome because you see the object of your love as worthy of sacrifice, worthy of service. Now again, John's not implying here that Christians keep God's commandments perfectly. Remember going all the way back to 1 John 1.8. He said that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And notice, remember, he's not using the past tense. He's not saying if we say we had no sin. No, present tense. If we say that we have no sin, we're either self-deceived or we're liars. No, we have sin. We still struggle with sin. We still disobey. He's not saying that we obey God's commandments perfectly, but he is saying Christians do keep God's commandments characteristically. Characteristically, Christians keep God's commandments. Why? Because in Christ, we are new creations. We are born again, made into sons and daughters of God. We are changed inside so that we can keep and desire to keep God's commandments. Douglas Sean O'Donnell says that the new birth of the new covenant gives us a new desire to obey the new commandment. You know, the, the new birth given by the Spirit's presence within us makes obedience to God's commandments possible. And the love that we have for God that comes from the new birth makes obedience to God's commandments desirable. His commandments are not burdensome and obedience to his commandments are not burdensome. That's the kind of obedience 
that is a birthmark of genuine Christianity. You see, the new birth produces fruit, which gives rise to love, which gives rise to glad-hearted obedience. Christians believe, love, and obey. And lastly, they, they persevere in doing so, which brings us to our last birthmark. Christians overcome. Look at verses four and five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Again, he's talking about being born of God, the new birth. Everyone who has the new birth overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John is saying that genuine Christians, they're not led astray by the world. They're not compelled to give up on their Christian pilgrimage. They don't give up on their faith in and love for and obedience to Christ. They're not compelled by the world to turn away from Christ. Remember what is meant by the word world when John uses it in this way. He's, he's not talking about the world as planet Earth, nor is he talking about the world as the sort of collective global population of people. No, when he speaks about the world in this way, he's talking about the, the system of evil that opposes God and his kingdom. He, a system comprised of both spiritual and physical realities that has Satan at its helm. It's, it's characterized by materialism and consumerism and preoccupation with sex and the pride of life and untethered entertainment habits and the like. Basically, the, the world in this context is everything present in God's creation that opposes him. It, it is a powerful and potent foe that constantly tempts us and seeks to draw us away from Christ. It tries to get us to trust in the American dream and possessions for the good life, for guidance, for safety. It tries to get us to love sex and money more than we love God. It tries to get us to obey the wishes and will of Satan rather than the commandments of our one true God. Christians, however, are not compelled by the world to turn away from Christ. Christians overcome the world because as John told us in 1 John 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In other words, Christians persevere. That's what overcoming the world means here. It means to persevere. It means to make it to the end of our pilgrimage, whether the end is death or the return of Christ for us. We make it to the end without being compelled to turn away from Christ. Perseverance, overcoming the world, is the final birthmark of genuine Christianity. And notice that John brings it back to faith, doesn't he? The one who believes loves, the one who loves obeys, and the one who obeys perseveres in doing so because of their belief. You see, John not merely wants us to see these Christian birthmarks this morning, but he wants us to see the way that they're interconnected so that we can't say, well, I have faith, but that love and obedience stuff, that's not really for me. Or I, I have faith and I have love, but all those commandments and what I, I, I don't really bother myself with, with all of that. See, he doesn't want us to have cheap assurance. He doesn't want us to falsely assume that we are genuine Christians. He wants us to be sure. He wants us to be confident. He wants us to know this morning. And so let me close with the call to four groups of people. First group, to those who are currently struggling with assurance. You know, you're struggling, you're wrestling, you're hurting. You're wondering whether or not you're actually 
a Christian, you're wondering whether or not you've received the new birth or whether or not your sins have been truly forgiven. You're hurting, maybe even inwardly tortured. I know what it's like. I was there consistently for the first few years of my Christian walk. I know. Let me tell you, the fact that you're concerned with whether or not you're a genuine Christian is evidence to me that you are. The fact that you are, as as Peter calls us to, seeking to confirm your calling and election, the fact that you are concerned with whether or not you are born again is evidence for your election, your calling, your having been reborn. uh, People who aren't genuine Christians, they're not concerned with whether or not they're genuine Christians. Let that comfort you and let that invigorate you to continue on, continue seeking to confirm your calling and election because you know that some of the most abundant and refreshing waters come after these kinds of storms. Some of the most sweetest and comforting times of assurance come after seasons of struggle and doubt like this. Continue seeking out assurance by looking at Christ, looking to God's word, remembering the gospel and preaching it to yourself often. And take notice, take notice of fruit in your life. Take notice of Christian birthmarks in your life. Don't look for perfection. It's not there. That will break you. But take notice of fruit. It's there. Be encouraged by it. Seek out others. You know, I know we're not often the best uh, sort of uh, judges of ourselves. We can either think of ourselves too highly, or be so self-deprecating. And so we, we often need others. You need friends in the church. You need folks in your city group, and your cohort. Ask them for help. You know, ask them, especially if you're toward the latter, those who are self-deprecating, ask them. You need close brothers and sisters in your life to encourage you by telling you where they see fruit in your life. A second group is, is those who are assured You're not struggling with assurance. You're actually feeling quite assured, quite confident, quite comforted by your position in Christ. That's wonderful. That's what John wants for you. That's what the elders and I want for you. What a wonderful thing. I would encourage you, though, to be a source of encouragement and assurance to those around you. You know, Martin Luther once said that the gospel on my brother's lips is stronger than the gospel in me. And I think what he meant by that is that, you know, there are times where we struggle with doubt, we struggle with assurance, and sometimes just a a timely word of gospel encouragement makes all the difference. I I recently, uh, it was actually a while back, um, I was was struggling with whether or not I was really cut out for this, this pastoring stuff. Uh, and, and there were some difficult situations in the church, and, and I just wasn't sure I was really cut out for this. Well, in the midst of this one day, I'm in a coffee shop, very public place, uh, mind you, and, and I'm listening to some audio feedback from one of my professors at school. I had my headphones in and all that, and, and throughout the paper, he's, he's kind of giving me feedback on this paper that I wrote, and uh, he's saying encouraging things. It's all very nice of him, and, and then in the end, he just stops, and, and he said something along the lines of, listen, Garrison, uh, you're always a joy to read. You're a careful thinker, a clear writer. Let me encourage you that if you're not currently in pastoral ministry, to seek out pastoral ministry. And if there's someone who's trying to hold you back from pastoral ministry, uh, let me talk to them because you're, you're ready to be a blessing to God's people to help them know and obey his word. And this is coming in the midst of just struggling with, I don't know if I can do this. 
And so I'm a blubbering mess in the middle of this coffee shop. I look up, and there's this young girl, college student, looking at me, just staring at me. It's so awkward. <laughs> but I was filled with confidence in that moment. I was filled with confidence to face those particularly difficult ministry situations. I was filled with confidence in order to fulfill the calling that God had given me and the means through which that came was just a timely God-ordained word of encouragement. And so I ask you, who can you be that for this morning? Who can you be that for tonight at your city group? Who can you be that for today? Who can you go to and say, listen, I just wanted to tell you, I see this particular fruit in you. I see this particular evidence of God's grace in you. I see this particular birthmark of genuine Christianity in your life. Who can you give a word of encouragement and assurance to today? Third, those of you who are assuming your salvation. You know, assuming your salvation, that's a dangerous thing. Because listen, either you're, you are a genuine Christian and you're missing out on the comfort and peace that comes from Christian assurance, or you're not a genuine Christian if you're assuming your Christianity and you're, you're, you're potentially not a genuine Christian and you're going to glide nice and easy straight on to hell. You'll sit in church week in and week out listening to God's word, coming up for the Lord's Supper, bowing your head to pray, all while being hardened to the truth of the gospel, all while becoming more and more deaf, more and more blind, more and more inebriated by the fact that you're a reprobate who will one day hear Christ say, depart from me because I never knew you. So I beg of you, don't assume. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, meaning give yourself to the work of self-examination. Seek to make your calling and election sure, as Paul said. Do you trust in Christ? Do you bear the marks of true belief and true repentance? Have you been born again? Fourth, to those who are not born again, We've heard about the new birth this morning, the Spirit coming, making you alive in Christ, enabling you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You've heard about these birthmarks, true belief, genuine love, glad obedience, perseverance in the faith, and they don't describe you at all. With Jesus and George Whitfield this morning, I tell you, you must be born again. Without being a born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot trust in Jesus. You cannot love others as you should. You cannot obey your God and King. And to try to do any of this apart from the Holy Spirit is like trying to paste fake fruit on a dead and decaying tree. And so as Jesus said to the apostles in John 20, 22, I say to you, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Come out of your tomb of sin and darkness and come into the light of God's grace. Cling to Christ as your Savior. Trust in him as the Son of God. Confess him as your Lord and you will be saved. And if you do, like all of God's children, you will bear the marks of the new birth. Not perfection, but you will trust in Christ. 
you will genuinely love God, not perfectly, but genuinely, characteristically love God and love his people. You will gladly obey, again, not perfectly, but characteristically, you will love and obey your God and Father, and you will do so all the days of your life until you reach the end where your Savior welcomes you into his arms. Let's pray. Father, we trust you this morning. We trust that as your word goes out, it will accomplish what you want it to accomplish. We trust that, that, that your will is good, and so would you help us this morning to submit to your will? Would you help us this morning as we have heard about the new birth and the marks that accompany it? Would you help us to test ourselves? Would you comfort those who need comforted? Would you prod those who need prodding? And would you give the new birth to those who need the new birth? Lord, we need you. So we pray all these things dependent upon you entirely. In Jesus' name, amen.